6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640 the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck completes his teaching on the book of Ecclesiastes, chapters 9 and 10. If we walk by faith, when we have no fear of the last enemy that Solomon introduced this uh, in this section. Why? Because Jesus has conquered death. Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead. Behold, I am alive forevermore, Jesus said in Revelation chapter 1. It was up that way. And because he is alive and we live in him, we don't look at life and say vanity of vanities. Solomon may say that we can't. Instead, we can echo the confidence expressed by Paul in 1 Corinthians 15. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of our Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Which leads us then to chapter 10. This is could be called the danger of folly, chapter 10. The danger of folly. The word folly occurs about nine times in this chapter. Dead flies cost the anointment of the apothecary to send forth a stinking savor. So doth a little folly in him that is in reputation for wisdom and honor. Now he, he had already compared a good name, a reputation to a fragrant perfume back in chapter seven. He's going to use this image again. See what dead flies are to perfume. <laughs> That's what folly is to one's reputation. In other words, uh, the conclusion is obviously that wise people will stay away from folly. Or somebody said one whoops can erase 50 attaboys so to speak. A wise man's heart is at his right hand, but a fool's heart at his left. I love this verse. It sounds like a partisan political statement to me. A wise man's heart is at the right hand, but a fool's heart is at his left. But um, that's really not what it's taken about. You can, you can quote that to the left-hand liberals if you like, but uh, that's, really, <laughs> that's really, I don't think, what, what Solomon has in mind. He also, when he that is a fool walketh by way, his wisdom faileth him, and he that saith to everyone that he is a fool. See that when he's talking about the heart here, he's not obviously not talking about the physical organ of the heart. It has nothing to do with wisdom or folly. He's referring to this when he speaks of the center of life, the master control within us. When he says heart, if you will, that governs the issues of life. And in the ancient world, by the way, it's interesting. The right hand was always the place of power and honor, and the left hand represented weakness and rejection. And uh, many people consider the left to be un, you know, unlucky. Uh, the English word sinister, it's an English word meaning left. The French word gauche, we use that word in a social sense. He's gauche, meaning clumsy. He's, uh, un, that's, it means left. Uh, we have sinister and dexter. Sinister is left, dexter is right. But we, the word sinister has come to mean that which is evil or that which is less or whatever. And uh, if you've studied sculpt, the ancient, the, the classical art, uh, probably best exemplified by Rodin, the sculptor, you'll notice that the hand of God, his famous uh, thing, is it's always a right hand. He has a very famous uh, sculpture called the cathedral. It's two hands, just in, pra- in an attitude of prayer. It's very well known. If you go to the Philadelphia Rodin Museum, you'll see it featured there among all those other things. But many people don't notice 
The two hands that make up Rodin's cathedral are both right hands. It's two people. It's not one person with both hands. There's two right hands, which is kind of interesting. But again, see, it's that classic concept that right is good and left is, is, is evil. And that's sort of what's behind the, the verse here. And of course, the fool doesn't have wisdom in his heart, so he gravitates to that which is long, wrong, that is the left. And thus he gets into trouble. People try to correct him, but he refuses to listen and tells everybody that, thus that he's a fool by not listening to the correction. And so now what Solomon, having laid down this idea, is going to apply it to four different fools. And the first one is the foolish ruler, starting in, in verse 4. If the spirit of the ruler rise up against thee, leave not thy place, for yielding pacifieth great offenses. For he, There is an evil which I have seen under the sun as an error which proceedeth from the, from the ruler. Folly is set in great dignity, and the rich sit in a low place. I have seen servants upon horses and princes walking as servants upon the earth. If there's anybody that really needs wisdom, of course, it's the ruler. And uh, that's why when God asked Solomon what gift he wanted, he asked for wisdom. What a shrewd request, if you're going to rule people especially. Lyndon B. Johnson is quoted as having said, a president's hardest task is not to do what is right, it's to know what is right. And uh, it's tragic that uh, in today's educational environment, there is not even an acknowledgement that there is a thing called right or truth. I can remember... Um, my parents were from the old country. My dad was a very simple, practical guy. But his concept, you go to school to learn what's right and wrong. That's basically what you go to school for. And how shocked he would be if he discovered that today's schools don't even have, do not have that as a goal. They don't even acknowledge that right and wrong exists. Value relativism destroys, uh, not only doesn't it create the sense of values, it destroys all purpose of education. That's what Alan Bloom de develops in his famous book, The Closing of the American Mind that in this pursuit of openness, we've actually closed our minds because we've just discovered if, if there's really no truth and there's no real incentive to understand history because it, it has no relevant lessons for the future. And that's, of course, utter nonsense, but it leads us to a closed mind and not an open mind, ironically enough. Anyway, uh, if the ruler, according to verse 4, if the ruler is proud, he may do it and say foolish things. That will cause him to lose the respect of his uh, associates. And the picture here is, of course, that of a proud ruler and who easily becomes angry and takes his anger out on his attendants around him. And you can always spot a weak ruler by the strength of the people around him. If you're so insecure as to have weak, be surrounded by weak people, that's a real danger sign. The strong guys encourage constructive dissent. As they joke around in business, where two people agree, one is unnecessary. <laughs> Proverbs 16.32 says, He that is slow to anger is better than he that mighty, and he that rules the spirit more so than he that takes a city. Proverbs twenty five twenty eight. Whosoever has no rule over his own spirit is like a city broken down without walls. Now he goes on to point out that it's not necessary for servants to act like fools. In fact, that's the worst thing they can do. That was, that was developed back in chapter 8 also, you may recall. Far better that they control themselves and stay right uh, where they, can, they are and seek to bring peace. Proverbs twenty five fifteen. Through patience, a ruler can be persuaded and a gentle tongue can break a bone. Or Proverbs 16, 14, a king's wrath is a messenger of death, but a wise man shall appease it. Now, of course, there is a place, a time and a place for righteous anger, and it sometimes does need to be displayed. Ephesians 4 talks about that. But that everything that we call righteous indignation is either righteous, <laughs> and it's uh, so easy to be motivated by uh, jealousy and malice, and then disguising them as a zeal for God. A crusader is... Zeal can be a mask covering a hidden anger or jealousy for some other reason. 
But let's, uh, in, in verse 5, there is an evil which I have seen under the sun, and so forth. Folly is set in great dignity, and the rich sit in a low place. A ruler is too pliable. He's also a fool. He lacks courage and character and courage. I remember seeing a, a, a uh, interesting, in, in one of the offices of one of, one of my bosses years ago, in his office he had a, a backbone. Actually it was a plastic, one, probably one of these plastic skeletons, but it was just a backbone framed under glass. And it had a little sign. Said, this is a backbone. You can't run a project without it. Never forgotten that. Now, if a ruler has incompetent people advising him, he's obviously certain to be ruling the nation unwisely. And Solomon's own son, Rehoboam, uh, was proud and unyielding, and that led to the civil war and dividing the division of the kingdom. So instead of following the advice of his counselors, he listened to his youthful friends and uh, made the elders walk and let the young put the young men on horses. The best rulers and leaders are men and women who are tough-minded but tender-hearted, who put the best people on the horses and don't apologize for it. That's sort of the flavor of the verse 7. I've seen servants upon horses and princes walking as servants. How ironic it was, that's exactly, in effect, what Rehoboam did. Well, his next series of verses from 8 to 11 will be about foolish workers. He started with the rulers, now he's going to talk about the workers. He that diggeth a pit shall fall into it, and whoso breaketh a hedge, a serpent shall bite him. Whoso removeth stone shall be hurt therewith, and he that cleaveth wood shall be endangered thereby. If an iron be blunt, and he do not wet the edge, then must he put to more strength. But wisdom is profitable to direct. Bear in mind, these are translations, and, and uh, it's Wiersbe's suggestion that what Psalm is focusing on here are people who attempted to do their work, but suffered by not doing it smartly. The commentators are quite divided about this section because the, the point is, they're not agreed on what his real points are. It's the, the translations are difficult. Is he saying that every job is, has its occupational hazards? If so, what was the lesson he was teaching? And why take so much space to illustrate the obvious? His theme is folly. And so he's not teaching that hard work is foolish because you might get injured. That's not what he's trying to say. And uh, all the way through uh, the book, Psalm's going to emphasize the value of honest labor and the joys it can bring. So why should he contradict his message here? And it's Wiersbe, I think, that highlights that what he's really talking about is that people are doing, trying to do their work, but they're not doing it, they're doing it foolishly, they're not doing it smart. One man dug, dug, you know, dug a pit, but is it, well, it may have been a well or a place for storing grain, but he fell in the pit himself. Why? Because he apparently didn't take the proper precautions. And frequently the, the, the scripture uses this as a picture of retribution, but that doesn't seem to be the lesson here. And uh, another man broke through a hedge, a wall or a fence, perhaps while remodeling his home, or, and a serpent bit him. Now serpents found their ways into hidden crevices and so forth. The man should have been more careful. He was overconfident and didn't you know, look ahead. Verse 9 takes us into the quarries and forests where careless workers are injured, cutting stones or splitting logs. And uh, verse 10 talks about the foolish worker par excellence. He's a man who tried to split wood with a dull axe. The wise worker will pause and sharpen it. In other words, don't work harder, work smarter. It's basically the flavor that would tend to unify these messages. That's why I think Wearsby's handle on this is better than all the other ones I've seen. Verse 11, Surely the serpent will bite without enchantment, and the babbler is no better. Now he's... <laughs> A babbler is a, the Hebrew actually says the master of the tongue. 
See, you have to understand, snake charmers were common in those days as entertainers. Uh, you know, it's interesting. You know, the snakes have no uh, no ears. They pick up the sound waves primarily through the bone structure of their head. So the more music, I should say more than the music played by the charmer, it's the man's disciplined actions, the swaying and, and the staring, that hold the snake's attention and keep, keep the serpent under control. This apparently is really the, the secret to the art form. Psalms describing here a serpent that uh, bit the snake charmer um, before the man had an opportunity to charm it or to gain control of it. So um, by, by risking his life, this charmer could not collect uh, any money from the spectators. They'd only laugh at him because he's a fool and uh, would be rushed at and, and and so on. Some charmers had a mongoose available that would caught the snake just at the right time and save the man from being bitten. And of course, if the mongoose missed his cue, the man would be in bad shape. But either way, the guy was foolish. Probably foolish in the first place for playing those kinds of games. But, but uh, the common denominator among all of these foolish workers seems to be presumption. They're overconfident, and they ended up hurting themselves or making the job harder. He now shifts, if you will, to um, foolish talkers in, uh, in verse 12. The words of the wise man's mouth are gracious, but the lips of the fool will swallow up himself. The beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness, and the end of his talk is mischievous madness. We're going to discover, of course, that in the book of Proverbs, uh, Solomon had much to say about the speech of fools. But in this uh, section here, He's going to point out four characteristics of the foolish words. In in the first case, they're destructive, in verse 12. The the, the words of the wise man's mouth are gracious, but the lips of the fool will swallow up himself. And whether you're talking about just personal conversation or you're talking about public ministry, it's interesting that the Lord always knew the right thing to say at the right time. And that's even prophesied in Isaiah 50, verse 4. And we should try to emulate him. The fool blurts out whatever's on his mind doesn't stop to consider uh, who might be hurt by it. And in the end, of course, the fool himself would be hurt the most. A fool is consumed by his own lips. He who guards his mouth preserves his life. He who opens his wide his lips shall have destruction. Proverbs 13.3. Proverbs 21.23. Whosoever guards his mouth and tongue keeps his soul from troubles. Say, we may try to hurt other people with lies and slander and angry words, but they're really, we're really hurting ourselves the most. Verse 13, the beginning of words of his mouth is foolishness, the end of his talk is mischievous madness. NASB says the beginning of his talking is folly, and the end of it is wicked madness. In other words, what he says, what he says doesn't make sense. The longer he talks, the crazier it becomes. He would be better off to keep quiet because all he says, all that he says lets everybody know that he's a fool in effect. And, uh, Paul called these people unruly and vain talkers in Titus 1. J.B. Phillips translated it as, who will not recognize authority or who talk nonsense. One way of looking at it. But okay, verse 14. A fool is also full of words. A man cannot tell what shall be, what shall be after him. Who can tell him? Is full of words, well, or multiplieth words in the Hebrew is what it really says. And the, the fool is full of words without realizing he's saying nothing. In Proverbs 10, Solomon uh, says, in the multitude of words, sin is not lacking. But he who restrains his lips is wise. Or James emphasized this in James chapter 3, you may recall. A person who cannot control his or her tongue is unable to um, discipline his own body. Remember Jesus said in Matthew 5, 37, Let your yes be yes and your no, no. For whatsoever more is more than these is of evil. It's from the evil one. 
The labor of the foolish wearieth every one of them because he knoweth not how to go to, uh, to the city. People who talk about the future talk as though they either knew all about it or are in control of what will happen. In Proverbs 27, 1, Do not boast thyself about tomorrow, for you know not what a day may bring forth. And Solomon continually emphasizes man's ignorance of the future. And uh, it's a truth that wise people receive, but fools reject. We can't protect the future. That's why when Solomon gets to investing, which he will in chapter 11, he's going to talk intensely about, uh, in effect, about diversifying your investments. And there's kind of a, there's a bit, incidentally, there's a humorous tone to this because the fool boasts about his future plans and wearies people with his talk, but he can't even find the way to the city is what, in effect, uh, he's saying here. Uh, or the common expression today, he's so dummy he can't learn the route of an elevator. You know, this is an is a, is a analogous time. And so, the, the, see, in the Bibli- even in biblical times, the roads to the city were well marked. And this idea that he can't find the way to the city is, is, is even in their context, you know, sort of you know, demeaning. It's a demeaning expression. We're now going to get from chapter 16 on, we're going to talk about officers, foolish officers. Woe to thee, O land, when thy king is a child and thy princes eat in the morning. I'm reminded, I have in my office, in fact, hanging a, a little thing from Napoleon's period for his officers. He says, I divide my officers into four classes, the brilliant and the stupid, the industrious and the lazy. Those that are brilliant and industrious are fitted for the highest staff positions. Work can also be found for the stupid and lazy. Those who are brilliant and lazy have the requisite nerve for the highest command positions. But those who are stupid and industrious present a danger and must be removed at all costs. (laughs) So he's already described foolish rulers, but now he's going to expose the folly of the officers who work under those rulers, the bureaucrats who are part of the machinery of the kingdom. And it's interesting to have this, this indictment laid down by the king himself, actually. He's going to talk about indulgence, incompetence, indifference, and indiscretion. Four areas. Indulgence, incompetence, indifference, and indiscretion. The first couple of verses, 16 and then the verse 17, are about indulgence. Blessed art thou, O land, when thy king is the land of nobles, excuse me, the son of nobles, and thy princes eat in due season for strength and not for drunkenness. In other words, the first kind of foolishness is, is uh, indulgence. If the king is immature, he'll gather around them people who uh, also reflect that immaturity and take advantage of it. And if he's a true nobleman, he'll surround himself with really noble officers who put the good of the country first. Real leaders who use their authority to build the nation. Not just office holders or hirelings, if you will. You don't want people to use public funds for their private purposes. The, it's a judgment of God when a people are given immature leaders. And that's Isaiah chapter 3. The first five verses of chapter 3 emphasize that. And that can happen not just to a nation, it can happen to a church or any organization. The term elder in Titus 1 and so forth implies maturity and experience. And it's wrong for a believer to be thrust into leadership too soon, as Paul advises First Timothy in chapter 3, verse 6. And age itself is no guarantee of maturity. Obviously, sometimes the youth will outstrip the elders in spiritual zeal, and yet also, sometimes even in judgment. So, the New International Version translates verse sixteen: "Woe unto you, O land, whose king was a servant." The suggestion there is that the servant became a king with the help of his friends, and now he's obligated to give them all jobs to remain on the throne. Hirelings could not be dismissed because the king's security depended upon them. So, the victor goes as spoils. In other words, it's a self-dealing kind of thought that underlies all that. Okay, the next, verse 18 focuses on actual directly incompetence. 
By much slothfulness, the building decays. And through idleness, the hands of the house drops through. The foolish officers here are so busy with enjoyment, they have no time for employment. And the buildings and the organizations start to fall apart. Proverbs 18.9, He who is slothful in his work is a brother to him that is a great waster. That sounds like a comment on the unions. It's always interesting that if you're in a workforce, there are conditions in which you don't want to work too hard or you'll get the ire of the, the local peer group. In any case, there's certainly a difference between those who use an office and those who merely hold an office. Immature people enjoy the privileges and so on, but they ignore the responsibilities. Woodrow Wilson said, A friend of mine says that every man who takes office in Washington either grows or swells. When I give a man an office, I watch carefully to see whether he is swelling or growing. Interesting. A feast, last verse 19, A feast is made for laughter, and wine maketh merry, but money answereth all things. Strange thing. Maketh, really means maketh glad the life. And uh, this really declares the philosophy of the foolish officers. Eat all you can, enjoy all you can, get all you can. And they're totally indifferent to the responsibilities of the office is the implication here. And it's interesting to see in recent years how the uh, in developing nations that get uh, aid from the, the uh, IMF or whatever, how easy it is for unscrupulous leaders to steal the government funds to build their own kingdoms. And this is, of course, tragically and religious, or tragically true in religious organizations too. The scandals among the some of the largest, most conspicuous ministries is is really disturbing. But it's interesting, even in development countries, how Yasser Arafat has billions of dollars in his personal accounts in Switzerland, and so all that uh, you know, uh, he greases his first, his own palms first, of course. But it's also true. We, I think we're all familiar with the scandals on TV, TV evangelists and so forth. Many of them. It's tragic. Love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, Paul told Timothy. And it was Prophet Amos that cried out against the wicked rulers of his day, who trampled the heads of the poor and treated them like dust of the earth. Amos 2 and 4 and 5, it's all through there. Ecclesiastes 10, verse 20. Curse not the king, no, not in thy thought, and curse not the rich in thy bedchamber. For a bird of the air shall carry the voice, and that which hath wings shall tell the matter. You know that little, we all have heard the expression, a little bird told me. There's some that believe that this came from this verse. As Tom uses that expression, and it was even thinking of evil thought, will find its way. You can almost imagine in this, you know, group of off- these foolish officers having a party in one of their private rooms. And instead of toasting the king, they're cursing him. Or making light of him is what the thing really says. And of course, they wouldn't do this if the king was around. And they were confident the company, all the buddies would keep it a secret. And of course they didn't. Somebody told the king. And that of course gave him, gave the king reason to take, uh, punish them or dismiss them from their offices. You understand what a secret is. A secret is something you tell one person at a time, you know. See, even if we don't respect the person in the office, we need to have respect for the office. Is that is part of the thought here. It's also amplified in the first Seven verses of Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2 and elsewhere. You shall not revile God nor curse a ruler of your people. Exodus 22, verse 28. And of course, these hirelings here were indiscreet when they cursed the king. They should have known that somebody would spill the beans. A, a statesman asks, what is the best for my country? A politician asks, what's the best for my party? But a mere hireling or office holder says, what's safest most profitable for me? And that's, we're moving that way tragically. More and more. Well, all of this then completes the uh, review, Solomon's review, 
uh, of his fourth argument, the life is not worth living, the certainty of death. And uh, he's, inclu- he's concluded that life is indeed worth living, um, even though death is unavoidable and life is unpredictable. That's really the, f- the flavor of, of chapter 9. And, and he ha- highlights here what we must do to avoid folly and live by wisdom. So this all concludes the second part of his discourse. He's reviewed four arguments presented in chapters 1 and 2 and decided that life was really worth living after all. The best thing you can do is trust God, do our work, and accept what God sends us, and enjoy each day of our lives to the glory of God. That's all it's been all through here. Now all that remains for Solomon to conclude his discourse is uh, practical application. And that's what he's going to do in the next two chapters. He's going to bring together all the different strands of truth that he's laid down so far, and he's going to weave this into a conclusion to show us what God expects us to do to be satisfied. And, and that's his whole theme. And that's uh, exactly what Warren Wiersbe calls his commentary. Be satisfied is the, the key theme. So we made it on time. Let's stand for a closing word of prayer. I encourage you for next time to read the rest of the book. There's just two chapters, 11 and 12. And uh, in many respects, they may prove to be the most fruitful for us personally, in practical terms, from the entire book. Let's bow our hearts. Well, Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for this strange book. We thank you, Father, for giving us the benefit of these words, and yet, Father, we also thank you through your Holy Spirit to help us to put these into your perspective from our position as being in Christ. We thank you, Father, that (laughs) all is not vanity, that indeed that whatever we do for you and for the kingdom and for our Lord Jesus Christ is has eternal value. We do pray, Father, you'd make us increasingly sensitive to our own conduct and attitudes and perspectives on a moment-by-moment and day-to-day basis. That in all these things, we might be more fruitful stewards and more fruitful examples to what you would have us. But above all, Father, more pleasing in thy sight as we commit ourselves into your hands in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Ecclesiastes. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android app store or search K-House TV on your Roku streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your prayerful continued support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.